Greetings to everybody. It's nice to have you here to, to join us for a program that has been long anticipated and, and much in the planning. I have to tell you that we've not been so excited about featuring a speaker as much as we are today to bring you such a distinguished citizen as Warren Nyer. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not merely witness to history with the presence of Warren Nyer. We are witness to a participant in the most important scientific experiments in the history of mankind. If you ask who is Warren Nyer, beyond this very nice, humble, courteous gentleman that you see on the streets of Idaho Falls every day, you may not know that he was there at the beginning. And the best way to introduce to you the accomplishments of Warren is to take note of the fact that in 1994, he received the very distinguished George C. Lawrence Pioneering Award from the American Nuclear Society, the most prestigious award that that group can confer on one of its own. Let me read the citation and provide you with a snapshot of what he's done in over his 55 years in work in the field of nuclear energy. For his pioneering leadership of the Atomic Energy Commission's programs on nuclear reactor safety covering both reactivity and loss of coolant accidents, you were at Stagg Field in 1941 as a member of Enrico Fermi's team and then monitored the criticality of both the X-10 at Oak Ridge and Hanford Piles. From 1954 to 1967, you led the development of the Idaho Reactor Safety Programs that included the SPURT and LOF programs when there were few precedents and a host of unknowns. Much of our experimental knowledge of the phenomena that drive light water reactor accidents had its origin then and there. You have also shared your counsel and wisdom with governments and your colleagues as an advisor to the Atomic Energy Commission and an active member of the American Nuclear Society. He was there at the beginning, which is to say he was in Chicago when they constructed the first nuclear reactor. He was there with the distinguished Italian physicist Enrico Fermi. He was at the Manhattan Project where we launched the first atomic bomb. He was there to help construct and monitor the nuclear reactors at Hanford and Oak Ridge. For 13 years here in Idaho, he was the Atomic Energy Commission's lead person responsible for the safety of nuclear reactors. Across this country and working with international agencies, he served as the technical member of boards to consider whether or not to construct and license nuclear reactors around the world. You wouldn't know it when you see this gentleman on the streets, but he was there at the beginning. Let me introduce to you our friend and distinguished citizen, Warren Nyer. One thing I'd like to do before I forget it is to thank Kara, Dr. Karen Liebert 
for helping today when we finally get to showing you some slides and for all the other things she's done in the meantime to help me. As I understand my assignment today, it's two things. Uh, one is to tell you about the famous experiment, uh, the CP1 pile in Chicago, and the other is to provide you with some personal information. Now that's sort of new for me in the, uh, these meetings, but uh, it will tie in with the things that I will tell you about in the uh, experiment itself, the things leading up to the experiment. So there are two stories that I'll try to hang together in the period of time that we'll be talking about is from 1939, uh, beginning with 1939 to 1945, which isn't all that long in terms of years. <clears throat> but I do need to give you a little bit of context because the world in which this took place is so different from the world that almost everybody here uh, has lived through and grew up in. Uh, after all the 60 or 65 years that uh, I'm talking about, we must have had 40 intellectual generations anyway between us. The uh, times uh, in uh, beginning in 1939 uh, that I'm aware of in dealing with the University of Chicago, uh, things were not really not very pleasant in the country. You know, I want to talk a minute, just a, a few seconds about that. The Depression was really not over. People had adjusted to a new way of living, but they still hadn't recovered to the point where you could say a good part of the society was back and as well off as it had been before the Depression started. That was despite all of the efforts of the federal government to assist and change things and make life easier, but I still could see in going to work that there were skeleton remains of buildings that were never completed and wouldn't be completed for a number of years to come. This was a daily reminder, if you will, that things had not completely recovered. The world was really not a very nice place outside of the United States either because the wars were starting and uh, the German armies were on march around the world and we were shortly to get more involved. So this was not a very time, very happy time in terms of what the society was feeling. The, on the other hand, in the world of science, and I'm now talking about not anything I knew but what I found out later, the world of science had been very, very exciting for the people in it. There were many, many discoveries that uh, almost every week they felt that they were getting a, a significant revelation that changed the way physicists thought about nature. <clears throat> and one other thing that, uh, now to get on to the personal point a little bit, uh, it was in 1939 that I graduated from high school. And uh, in the middle of that summer, I received a postcard, which is the reason I'm here today. And to the uh, extent that you all are here today to hear me, it affected your lives too. 
And I may even tell you how that came about in just a minute. But one of the things that happened was that I wanted a college education very deeply. It was not possible to get a college education without also getting a steady income. Now, that ended up with me having an arrangement at the University of Chicago, helped by Professor Compton, who later headed a major portion of the Manhattan Project. But it was helped by him because he agreed that I could be allowed to change my workload as a laboratory assistant, uh, working 44 hours a week in the physics department. If I would, uh, or could arrange my working schedule so that I could take classes. Just uh, the scholarships that were available in the, that era simply wouldn't have been adequate. And a genuine income was needed in addition to that. So that was my introduction. I got a job as a laboratory assistant uh, in the uh, University of Chicago Physics Department and worked 44 hours a week, took a two-thirds load, which I thought uh, would get me a bachelor's degree in something like five, six years if I worked summers as well, and was well on the way of doing that. In the meantime, in the lab work that I did, I was trained in certain areas that turned out to be extremely useful later on. A major portion of what went on, I was in the final stages of making equipment to detect neutrons or any other radiation if you chose to be looking for something else. That turned out to be extremely valuable because that's a major tool in everything that people did at, at later times. <clears throat> and it taught me a little bit of the working techniques that people used in making things radioactive and knowing what that meant and how to deal with it. So that was how I uh, spent the first year and a half at, in my working time. But now I want to uh, begin to talk about what was happening in the scientific world that I began to learn about that would eventually lead to the formation of the Manhattan Project. In 1939, the news of a great discovery was brought to the United States by Niels Bohr. And this was announced at a meeting of the Theoretical Society uh, in New York, I believe, or possibly was Washington but it was before I was interested in such things personally that, that this took place. But that electrified the, the uh, scientific world because the kinds of energies that were available were per unit millions of times the extent that was available through ordinary chemical reactions. So this was just an enormous thing opening up, and there was quite a bit of news in the public newspapers about this discovery, and the sci-fi writers of the day were very busy talking, even at that early date, about the possibility of nuclear weapons and the possibility of making devices that could 
to sell power to the public in general. So both nuclear power and nuclear weapons were more or less discussed by the, the uh, lay public at the time, by the newspaper writers, and they were discussed rather quietly behind the scenes in the world of science. Well, I was oblivious to that until about uh, one time in 1941, some work was started at the University of Chicago, and this was mainly an assessment of where the science stood at the time with respect to knowing what the possibilities really were. There, the work was in a disorganized way in the sense that we had a bunch of people going their normal way in the scientific world just doing the experiments that were appealing to them. A few people were getting very, very modest assistance from the federal government, but things hadn't gelled. And things hadn't gelled because people didn't know how big a job it would be to realize these uh, dreams about either power or weapons. The, uh, some people thought it was going to be quite possible. Other people thought it would never work or it would, wouldn't work in time to be of any help in World War II. Uh, that bit of doubt, if you will, about how much effort should be expended in looking into this possibility extended for a number of years. And in fact, it was uh, well into the 40s, a few years before uh, the last doubter was convinced that something could be achieved along this line. <clears throat> Actually, the programs began in 1941 in a serious way. Uh, Compton brought back uh, to the University of Chicago a man who uh, had been a professor of physics at the university. And I think, Karen, we can start showing some of the slides. Dr. Liebert, I should say. This is the site where everything took place uh, in respect to the chain reaction as far as building the units that would lead to CP1. And this, these, this is a photograph of the west stands of the football field that existed at the university. Stag Field, you may have heard the name. Um, and the only reason for showing it is to show you uh, we had for the work that I will discuss briefly, uh, the workspace was on the first floor mainly of this building running down to the central tower. And I will return to that a little bit later because that is where the, all the small reactors, would-be reactors, I should say, the models the, uh, where they were built and where the prior efforts at uh, uh, measuring whether or not we were getting close to being able to build a chain reacting system whose power could be of usable amounts either as power or as usable amounts in a weapon structure. And uh, let's go to the next uh, slide a bit. Now, I hope you can read this. Uh, it's a little hard for you to see, 
but we are using high-tech 1945 stuff, and I think you should know that. <laughs> this was slightly on purpose to try to set the mood a little bit for uh, what we had to work with at that time, because you're going to be astonished when I tell you how simple these measurements actually were. But I want you to look at uh, group three in change because my name is there. And I'm really quite proud of that. That's the first time I was recognized. The, uh, there are four or five names in that group. These were the people who at that time actually consisted of the ones that handled the uranium oxide at that time. So it was a very small group. And part that you can't read uh, at the very top uh, says something else uh, rather important. Uh, by, uh, this was a message from Arthur Compton to the leaders in the laboratory. It says, I'm having to change the organization chart that I gave you two weeks ago. Now that tells you what was happening at the laboratory. It was doubling in size every couple of weeks, and uh, the rumor was that you had to contact your secretary to find out who was in charge when you got back from lunch. Uh, <laughs> because it, it could have changed while you were gone. And the other thing I wanted you to notice was how small the group really was. Under Fermi, there were two major divisions. One was in the old physics and math building on the regular part of the campus. The other group uh, that was in this uh, group three that I pointed out, that was the group that was in charge of the measurements using what forms of uranium were available at that time. Now, at the same time, the, uh, there was a major amount of work under Fermi's previous group that had been in uh, Columbia U University in New York. But they, uh, just starting in 1941, uh, these groups were exchanging information, and they work uh, at both Columbia and Chicago were going on until the beginning of 1942, Arthur Compton consolidated everything in the work at Chicago. And that included the people from California who were working on the bomb calculations. Uh, they were aided and spurred on quite a bit by the work that was being carried on in England. And in fact, the uh, English and the uh, the, their scientific groups, plus the Australian groups, were major prodders of the United States to get going with a fairly large project. Well, that, the decision to go that route uh, finally came in late uh, 41, when Arthur Compton came back to the laboratory and the word went round everywhere that the lid is off. Uh, the context of that remark was, we are going to get all the money we need to do anything we need to pursue this. Because not too long before that, and in fact, right after Niels Bohr had raised the question of fission in the United States, uh, the emigre scientists that Hitler had kindly sent to this country managed to uh, get together uh, and get Albert Einstein to uh, 
be the front man for them so that they could get a letter to President Roosevelt. Now that occurred early in 39, actually, and from 39 to 42, things were progressing in this country, but they were at a low key. But it was finally in the beginning of 1942 that things really started to happen. And I want to show you the uh, next slide, Karen. Show you what the structures were, and I will give you a very brief indication of how we use these things. These were in the place, in the location where the CP-1 was finally built. But at this time, not too much material was available of the right kind. It had been determined that uh, the materials that we needed all had problems because, of course, they were, they were to the extent that any refining was done or manufacturing was done, it had nothing to do with the needs of, of the uranium people or the people who were trying to build a chain reacting system. So it's lucky that they, they were indeed fortunate that they got what they did get. So for the first year or so that the experiments were being conducted, the graphite blocks that, were, that make up the structure that you're looking at, the graphite blocks contained impurities. <clears throat> and when, <clears throat> when it became possible to have uh, some uranium metal, which was again fairly late in the game, uh, it, the metal that needed some changing and said it wasn't the right form of oxide, it had too much oxygen in and wasn't as good as, as a, a particular oxide that had less uh, oxygen in it. So all these things required vast amounts of work elsewhere in the country. Uh, one little chore I had at one time was to uh, take a driver and all of the available uranium oxide that we had and take that down to the Mallinckrodt Company in St. Louis. Uh, I was greeted at the gate by a man who was expecting me who was a Captain Ruhoff, a name you'll never hear again, but who had the nerve then to say that he could do the reduction. And even though he had a military commission at the time, General Groves made sure that he was available to do the job he thought he could do. And uh, this was the way things worked then. Uh, you only needed the right person to say yes, and everything followed, you got all the supplies you needed, you got all the people you needed, and you could do that through the military organization. Now, they took care of the real problems, which were hiding the expenditures from Congress. <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> that, uh, the saying was, if Congress knew what we were doing, they'd know we were crazy. And uh, the other story that went round was that if this doesn't work, Congress will investigate nothing else but this. Now, if it does work, they won't investigate this. So that was to urge everybody to do their best, and uh, I'm sure everybody did. But uh, the structure that was finally built was built in the same place those previous, uh, that that previous slide showed. And this is really a fairly good uh, picture of what took place. 
No photographs were taken this day. I asked Walter Zinn uh, sometime later why there weren't any photographs. He said, the Army told us not to. Not to. So the only people who were present uh, the, after we started this building job, uh, what had happened was that it had been planned to build this structure in Palis Park. The building was being erected. Uh, the work on it stopped because of a strike by the unions. And it was clear that it was not going to be ready in time, that we would be ready to make the attempt to build a chain reacting system. The new material was coming in, pure materials, vast quantities of it, and we now had enough material to start the building. Well, waiting two more months was very disturbing to everyone on the staff, on the technical staff at that time, because if we were right about this project, and I don't mean we as being a part of people deciding whether it was right, but we on our side in the war uh, would be late in getting into the war and we would be losing lives every month that we could have saved if we had had uh, access to the building. Because there was a long process after this experiment took place that had to be followed before we could uh, make a, a production weapon. Well, what happened, uh, uh, Fermi thought about it quite a bit, and he went to Arthur Compton, the head of this whole part of the project, and said he thought he knew how to do this test safely by building the reactor under the West Stands. That's what that photograph, that first photograph that we had, it was to be built in that building, which is right in the center of the campus at the University of Chicago. And if you may not have noticed, but there were some residential homes built on one side of the street there, and uh, they would be exposed to anything that uh, went wrong. Well, the building, Arthur Compton did not ask the president of the university for permission to build the pile because he said, the only thing he can do is follow my recommendation. And if we're wrong, he shares in the blame. But if I don't tell him, and I do this, and things go wrong, I'm the only one to blame. And so he made that, uh, what I think was quite a nice gesture, but it also speaks a little bit to the temper of the times. In the meantime, of course, uh, the world situation had gotten to a point that Things were not very good for the United States or the Allies. Our first efforts in the war were disasters. Not only the one that got us into the war, which was the disaster at Pearl Harbor, when the, most of our Navy was eliminated. And the, uh, the Japanese had a essentially free march on the, their island hopping campaign in the Western Pacific. That didn't stop until a fairly late in the game after we had entered it. Well, in any case, I want to get back to the uh, to this structure and make uh, some comments on it. On the upper left-hand side, you can see uh, some figures uh, and a low railing. 
That's where the bulk of the people who were connected with the building process. Both of the Fermi's two large groups had been combined in the building process, and this meant handling every bit of the 400,000 pounds of graphite block and tons of uh, uranium oxide and a few tons of uranium metal. All of this had to be done by hand. It was done by the people who did all the experiments on these materials. And what we did, what those experiments were, uh, a block of graphite would be built, and it might have some uranium, it might not have any uranium, it might be pure graphite, or it might have some uranium in it of various kinds, and it would be arranged in a particular pattern which could be changed. Now, the, that's what the structure was. We built 30 of those in the year 1942. They were all built by hand, and they were all handled, uh, all those tons of graphite were handled over and over again. That was the drudgery part, and that was the drudgery part of those of us who worked in the West Stands. But the fun part was, as soon as they were built, we could make some simple measurements. Now, the simple measurements consisted, required first that we put in this graphite block a source of neutrons. And that's the only mention I'll make of, of the exotic uh, parts of the physics of this. Uh, at any rate, what this did with the source of neutrons in the bottom, whatever the structure was composed of, there would be a sea of neutrons floating around in there. The idea, all we did, was to take simple foils, so maybe about that big by that big, very thin, place them in appropriate positions in the graphite, which we could do because an allowance had been made for that. They would become radioactive. That radioactivity would be measured in the counting room that was in that end room, that tower on the very end of the West Stands. The counters were in there. This was very simple. We measured the distribution of neutrons. But from that, you could get enormous amount of information. The calculations were fairly complicated. You will not be bored with knowing anything about them. But the measurements themselves were thin, were uh, easy, and they were simple. And one point I wanted to get to that I hadn't made uh, earlier was that how did the young guys like myself get to know what was going on? There was no problem. Teachers love to teach, and it only takes, in your, if you're in the presence of a person who likes to teach at that level, if you have a question, you ask the question, and you get it answered. Get it answered by a faculty that you couldn't get anywhere else, because all of these great guys had been gathered in to work on this job. So they also went out of their way to train the young people. I was. Uh, it took me a long time to figure out, um, longer than should have, to figure out why we were welcomed into the scientific staff. I was an undergraduate in physics. I was one of the two undergraduates who were research assistants. We, we had a new title, by the way. 
we were no longer laboratory assistants, we were research assistants. Now this, for some profound bureaucratic reason, was helpful to everybody, but it gave us a little bit more status than we might have had otherwise, and we did have access to the reports. So we had a chance to read the reports, we were being trained by these people, but the thing that had puzzled me is why do they bother with us so much? Well, it became clear through one incident uh, why that was important. I had gone home one day and found that I had a letter from the draft boards saying that your deferment has lapsed. Well, I was in uh, some considerable shock at that and I didn't go back to work the next day. I went downtown immediately. I, if I'm going to get drafted, I want to see if I can get into officer candidate school. Well, the morning was devoted to a test, and that was a piece of cake, a uh, written test. But the afternoon test, I failed miserably because I had high blood pressure, if you can believe it. 19 years old, and I had high blood pressure. Well, it turned out to be a lifelong problem, but uh, it was well worth finding out at that youthful age. Anyway, the, uh, despite lying down on the cot for a number of hours in, uh, in the hands of the army uh, downtown, my blood pressure would not come down, and so they sent me home. Went to work the next day, and uh, two of the senior men later had very important positions in the Manhattan Project and became great friends. They were already mentors of mine came around and asked me, where were you? This wasn't a kind of punitive questioning, saying, you left us alone yesterday. What were you doing? Were you ill, or what's the story? So I told them what had happened. They looked at each other in amazement, and they said, and they, a sense of anger grew. They said, now, don't do anything stupid like what you did yesterday and run off and try to leave us, but we'll get back to you in a couple hours. They disappeared. They came back and said that what had happened was that the personnel man had collected all of the deferments that were ending, uh, uh, expiring, and he had just thrown them together in the bottom of the drawer because he wanted to write one letter and get it all done in one easy way. And, but mine would have been languishing there for a couple of weeks or whatever. Well, this incensed the two uh, physicists who had come to visit me. I never saw that man again. He disappeared completely, never heard his name again. Well, that was nice to be treated that way, but why? I'm still a kid. Uh, so I was, still not even 20 years old or 21 years old, whatever. Um, so why are they worried about someone of my limited training at this point? Well, it finally dawned on me. Every one of us freed one of those PhDs to do something that he found much more interesting. And besides that, he didn't have to do the drudgery anymore. We did the drudgery, and we got the training in return for it and the protection. So I didn't feel quite so uh, naked in front of the draft boards, if you will, after that. Well, anyway, uh, 
I, there were two things I wanted to stress. That even the young guys, once you were part of the team, you did know what was going on. And besides that, it would have taken a perfect idiot to know that um, know about the uranium and the, the work that was being done and not have a good idea of what was really behind all of this. So that was just to relieve any questions you might have had that we didn't know what was taking place because of our youth. Uh, that is not true. We were, we were a part of the team. Now, <clears throat> let's uh, get to the building of this structure. The, after the delays at Palos Park were identified and Fermi got permission to go ahead and plan the pile in Chicago under the West Ends. This building was constructed. Now, if you look at the photograph, you'll see a kind of rooftop over the structure. And that is a balloon cloth, a square balloon cloth, that the pile was built in because it, at one time it would, was thought necessary to be able to close that up completely and evacuate the oxygen, put in some other kind of gas in its place. That, that would be necessary. We were that close to not being able to build that, a chain reacting system, that every little potential problem had to be avoided or solved in advance. Well, it turned out that from among those 30 small piles that I told you uh, we built in that year, one in May indicated that we could get the magic number above one. There was a magic number that signified when we would have success. The requirement was to have this magic number greater than one. And that indicated that with all the that was known at that time, we could build a large enough system to make it successful. And this was the uh, job that we had to do was to build this particular one. You'll notice one person down on the left-hand side below the structure that led there was in the, the beam that's over his head held the control rods. The control rods in this large structure of graphite and uranium, uranium metal, uranium oxide. This was structured so that the most uranium was in the center and this looked like a cube going out and, and the very outside of the, of the cube would be just pure graphite. But <clears throat> there were some channels in there that allowed control rods to move in and out. And the function of, of uh, the symbolic man at the bottom who held a rod in his hand, this really told you what was taking place on the right-hand side, which is where an elevator was built to load the fuel as the structure was being built. Uh, the, you'll notice that there's an empty space between the top and the, the uh, top of the canvas. Those of us on the side away from the balcony could peer over the top of the roof and see what was going on on the balcony, but just barely. Well, now, most of the people involved 
that day had nothing to do. But they were the people who had built the system. They were the people who should be there. In any case, there were a total of about 40 people on the balcony. There were a small number of people 100 yards, 100 feet away in a remote control system. There, were, there was George Weil, there was the man on the floor, who would have final control over one important poison rod that he moved by hand. And then on the back side was an elevator which was, had a small group of people. On the balcony, there was a small system operated by Fermi himself. And he was making the measurements at that point. He was in control of what people were doing everywhere, but he was in control from that point. And in the, on December 1st, we met early on the night shift. I was working the night shift because I occasionally had a class to attend in the morning. And the, we ran out of material about 10 o'clock at night instead of working most of the night as we would have. We ran out of fuel that night, buttoned things up. Herb Anderson said he had promised Fermi he wouldn't pull the rods himself. He would wait and let Fermi do it the next day. So the next day we began assembling at about 8 o'clock in the morning. Everybody was there fairly shortly. And the work of testing the equipment and testing the success of the, the operation started. Well, about, it was possibly around 11 o'clock, 11.30 in the morning. Things had been very quiet, and every now and then a new adjustment would be made. Everything seemed to be going very well, and there was an awful noise. And what had happened was that the intensity of the number, neutrons in this big structure now had gotten so great that it had tripped the safety rods. And they, all they did was do their job. But no one was expecting it. And uh, in the, the tense atmosphere that existed, the, it jolted everybody. Well, at that point, Jeremy said, I'm hungry. Let's go to lunch. So, <laughs> It's wonderful to be around someone who is so confident. <laughs> well, uh, I didn't mention to you that uh, the group really was, uh, no one was worried. No, no one could talk about what we were doing when we all broke for lunch because we were out elsewhere. And uh, I don't think anybody would have been inclined to speak anyway because of what shortly happened. Well, the afternoon, uh, just before starting the afternoon, uh, Fermi felt that the three people were, who were on the elevator uh, and jokingly called the suicide squad, but uh, they had an assignment. Sam Allison said, if there is, we don't know what's really going to happen. Now, Allison's big shot in this whole deal, but he said, we really don't know what is going to happen. We are going to have a source of neutrons that has never been generated before. It's going to be so intense, nobody knows what really is going to happen. 
we must have a means of destroying this system if all goes wrong. So he insisted that a, uh, a last-ditch shutdown mechanism be constructed, which uh, several of the fellows did, and they were the group on the elevator. And their job was, in case everything goes wrong and I give the order, this was from Sam Allison, then you were to go up and break this, the containers of this poison and destroy the whole thing, which would have been, of course, a disaster from the project's point of view. But in any case, that was where the name came from. Now, that did not signify that anybody there was really in any greater danger than anybody in the room, because what's a few feet? being away from a source like that. That just doesn't, doesn't make that much difference, but it's enough to get everybody's attention anyway. So um, he asked the three men who were there if uh, anybody wanted to be relieved. After all, they were there when they couldn't talk to anybody. They were all alone. And uh, only one of, his, uh, one of them, Al Waddenberg, said that he would like to be relieved. He was one of Fermi's men who had been with him in Columbia, too, so this made some sense. I volunteered to take Al's place, uh, not because uh, I thought that was a great thing to do, except the young boys like myself just didn't have anything to do. So th there was nothing to do, but at least if I went over there, I'd have an assignment. It didn't matter what, even if it was to wreck things, at least it was something that uh, I knew that I could get done and feel like I was doing something. So I took uh, Al's place in the afternoon. The thing proceeded the same as it had in the morning, very quiet, except now, as every readjustment of the control system was made, we could hear over the intercom system coming from the end room, uh, we could hear the voice of one of the men telling us what the counting rate was. Well, very shortly, the measuring devices far exceeded anything we had ever experienced in the laboratory tests in the previous years. And we knew something was happening. Now, the people on the balcony later uh, were somewhat unnerved a little bit. I shouldn't say that. That's too strong a word. But at one point, it was clear that Fermi was allowing the system power to continue to raise. And what he was doing was every now and then checking how long it took for the power to double. Now, the doubling time is a very important thing. And the shorter that doubling time, faster and faster things will go. And it won't take very long for the power to go up by orders of magnitude, a factor of a thousand. You just name it. It doesn't take very long for that to happen in short doubling time. Well, the people who were standing around watching Fermi manipulate his little six-inch slide rule, which was part of his working technique, too, and they kept wondering why he wasn't saying, let's shut it down. Well, finally, he said, it, the curve is exponential. That meant that it was on an indefinite rise it would just go on forever unless we shut it down or it shut itself down. That meant 
it's over, we've done it, it works. So he called for everything to be shut down. That was about 3.30 in the afternoon. And those of us on the elevator saw and heard clapping on the balcony. We could see that over the top of the balloon cloth. And that just a little bit of clapping, and then everything got quiet again. And we were waved over uh, that we should join them. So everything was shut down. We went over and joined them. By the time we walked into the, the uh, balcony where the people were assembled, uh, Eugene Wigner pulled out the bottle of Chianti he had hidden, and also that he had bought months earlier, and presented it to Fermi. Fermi ordered uh, someone to go get little tiny paper cups, and we all had uh, drank a toast to Fermi, and he saluted us in return. But now this is this is something that's strange. The after doing what we knew was equivalent of the discovery of fire in importance and in its ability to probably change the fate of mankind, both for good and bad. There was no discussion. I just don't remember anyone saying anything. And in a way, this makes more sense, because what would one say when you knew this was a historic event? Almost any uh, brief and remark would be banal at that point. So people did not say anything. There was no talking about it afterwards. I think everybody was really uh, tossing this thing around in his own mind. And it took uh, a while for everyone to come to grips with what this really meant, because uh, thinking about it overnight, we were in the new world now. This was not science fiction any longer. This was now science and engineering. And we were part of the big game, the big game being the World War II. We had a chance, if we could do this in time, complete the rest of it, what the promise was, we could affect the war. We could save a lot of American lives. <clears throat> the, it took a while for it to become evident that this was a turning point. There were some people, uh, some important people, who had turned down the, the opportunity to come uh, over at the time the experiment was about to be completed. He, he refused to acknowledge they regretted for the rest of their lives. But it was because everyone was so sure that it would work, that and they had so much confidence in Fermi's calculations, that they didn't think, they really thought it was going to work. But what they didn't understand was what this did to the psyche of everybody, because the attitude subtly changed. <clears throat> It was a turning point, and uh, Eugene Wigner did not uh, said he did not realize that this had become a turning point in the whole thing until some long, relatively long time had passed. Now, let me just make a, a few quick remarks on what this meant 
in the long run, <clears throat> by the way, there's a direct line from that to the site here, it, which could, it would take me too long to point it out, but it was a logical pr procession to get something like INL built at, at, after the war was over. And so uh, the, that event had its effect on everybody who is here today. Well, the, <clears throat> the other major thing, of course, was that after the war, we had big science. We had lots of money. Uh, the uh, social scientists were complaining about having to tip their hats to the physicists on campus, uh, which <laughs> only, only represents their uh, uh, dislike for the competition, not what was really taking place. Anyway, that's the end of the story. So. We may or may not have many questions from the audience in light of our time, but oh. I'd, I'd like to ask you, Warren, from there you went on to work on the Manhattan Project. Could you talk to us for a couple minutes about your experiences at Los Alamos and what your thoughts were when you beheld the explosion of the A-bomb? Uh -huh. um, yes, I'd be glad to. The, um, immediately after the, uh, the the laboratory itself underwent major fissioning. Plans had already been made of what the immediate needs were. The DuPont Company were signed on that day to do the uh, work at Hanford. So work at Hanford was started that day, at least in its paper form. Work on the decision to build a pile at Oak Ridge as the next scale up was made. This was all made, and by the way, there was supposed to be a committee reviewing whether or not the plutonium route would be followed up or whether the government should no longer support that particular effort. Now, General Groves wasn't waiting. For, by that time, the Army was in full control, and General Groves wasn't waiting for anybody else to make any decisions that affected what was now his major project. And he was not a man to uh, waste time making decisions. He picked out the people. He had a, and they already had the uh, place to go in Oak Ridge. They were negotiating for the, all the land in Hanford. And he di didn't bother waiting for what the committee would say. He authorized us to go ahead anyway. So that part of it went fairly easily. But the next day, uh, the other thing that was realized immediately by Fermi was that he had an extremely sensitive technical tool to use a reactor for. It, one could almost say that if you, you threw one atom of a poison in there, you could detect it. The only problem is you'd have to wait forever to know that you had detected it. But that could happen. That was the limits of the sensitivity of the system were what you wanted to make them. And that was what began happening the very next day uh, to that system, which was very shortly moved out. And once the building was completed at Payless Park, it was rebuilt as CP2 and was a major help in 
learning about materials that would be a problem and would, in effect, poison the operation of the reactor. At that time, uh, one part of the group was being set aside to go to Los Alamos. One part of the group was being set aside to go to Oak Ridge. One part was remaining in Chicago to do their work. Uh, I was selected to go to Oak Ridge. And it, by May 10th of the next year, just a few months, I was on my way to Oak Ridge with uh, the straw boss of a couple DuPont engineers. And we were essentially going down there to make sure that the graphite that was being sent down there for building this next scale pile was as good as it was supposed to be. This was the new graphite. So we went down and repeated the same measurements that had been going on in Chicago, except we didn't have to handle the judgery stuff now. When you have DuPont, you have loads of people to do things like that. So uh, we spent about six weeks making measurements on the graphite. I went back to Chicago, got married, and uh, then finally went back to Oak Ridge. After being at Oak Ridge, I was impressed by Dr. Doan. Everybody knows Dr. Uh, most of you people remember Dr. Doan, who came out here. And that's the reason I came out here, was that he was here. In any case, uh, uh, Dr. Doan uh, was someone who ran the laboratory in Chicago for a while. He ran the laboratory in, in Oak Ridge, and he, in Oak Ridge, impressed me, and that's in the sense of impressment of sailors early on, about taking a job with DuPont uh, in Hanford. And I, his arguments were persuasive. Let's say that. So I ended up in Hanford for the uh, work that DuPont had asked for physicists from the laboratory part of the project because the DuPont people said, we know how to handle chemists. We know how to handle mathematicians. We don't know how to handle physicists. And so they hired a group that we called the babysitters. And our job was to just watch. And if we felt that any trouble from the nuclear area where DuPont did not feel it had experts, but if we felt that there was a problem we had the power to shut everything down right away. Uh, of course, there were hazards of doing things like that. But that was what the job was, just to sit around and watch things. Well, that was very nice. And you can do that when you are rich in supplies and rich in people. And DuPont always made sure it was rich in both. Well, that, it, when it became clear that uh, the babysitter's job was kind of ending its uh, interest, I went to Arthur Compton, who was there, uh, and, and Enrico Fermi was there, too. Both of them were there. And I went to Compton and said, I'm ready to go to Los Alamos now. So he called Oppenheimer, and in a week's time, we were on our road to New Mexico. Got there just in time to find out that the last great push at Los Alamos was taking place and I was just the first of the wave of people who would be coming there. And so Los Alamos burst its housing seams for the 
the nth time. That happened very often down at Los Alamos. Well, anyway, I got at Los Alamos in time to be there for the first bomb test. And I also went on a later bomb test in the Pacific. I saw three, three bombs there. But the uh, experience at Alamogordo was uh, stunning, even though prior to this, I had become accustomed to the units that uh, people used at Los Alamos. When you talk about brightness, you don't talk about lumens. You talk about suns. How many suns is this particular weapon going to produce? And uh, it's a number larger than one. So it's a big amount. And uh, uh, I was at 10,000 yards from the bomb test site uh, where the weapon really was. The other thing was that one could feel very easily the heat, instantly. Um, the radiation is mainly, mainly the radiation that we were absorbing. Uh, that was because I went outside to see it. After, after our instruments uh, had started, the timing signals had come to the bunkers where people were stationed. There were three bunkers at, in Almogordo. And, um, when the timing signal came through and it was obvious that the equipment had started, didn't need us any longer. I went outside, I had a little cardboard box over my head and a slit in it had been cut and I put the welder's goggle in it. And when I was holding that in my hand when the bomb went off, my hands got quite warm and I, uh, in some, uh, state of uh, not thinking about anything I got on the ground to, uh, because I had no idea what the, the uh, pressure would be. Very shortly thereafter, the pressure wave came along. And then it, the sun started to rise. You could see the sunlight on the mushroom cloud. And now um, I don't think anybody ought to have to hear uh, anything about about, you should hear anything about nuclear power or nuclear weapons without seeing the blue glow. Now, this is a photograph taken of one of our spurt reactors later when the blue glow became something you could find easily. It was very hard to see at uh, Oak Ridge, but it was easy to see at Hanford. And when it happened in the bomb, and you could see it in the bomb, and the, rising through the air, the mushroom cloud. That was a thrilling sight. That's it. Thank you. Let's, let's take advantage. One more question. Let's take advantage of your more than five decades in the field of nuclear energy and ask you, what advice would you give to our Secretary of, the, of Energy about his views on the issue of nuclear energy? We should be building a new plant every week. Because there is no other solution to our long-term energy supply problem. We're going to do it sometime when we have to. We should be doing it now before we really have to, when nobody is selling us any power or selling us power at a price we can't afford in the fossil fuel business.
Well, this has been terrific. We thank you so very much for bringing your expertise and your witness to history to share with us today. We need more time with you, but I'm afraid that our time has expired. Please join me in thanking Warren for this wonderful program.